I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jack Pod, where on-point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Well, it's episode 15, Jack, and it's our last jackpot of 2023. How time flies, I have to say. Um, But today's headline, I'm actually going to give it, Jack, okay? So today's headline is In the Host's Seat. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) it's your dreams come true. You can sit right where I do every day and have this uh, delightful and mind-expanding conversation with Jack. Or short of that, we asked you to send some questions the questions that uh, you really wanted Jack to answer. So, Jack, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, I'm trying to think it may have a Frost-Nixon kind of feel, but uh, we'll we'll make it through. <laughs> um, I know I do this tease all the time, but first, Jack, before we get to our listener questions, I actually want to hear from you. I mean, it has been quite a year. What are your, some some of your reflections on 2023? Uh, Well, just on two events, really, or maybe three, uh, the economy. I'm reading in Paul Krugman, 2023 is ending as one of the best (laughs) years on record for the American economy. He predicts that at the next Fed meeting, uh, monthly statistics will show that inflation is almost now within the 2% range that the Fed uh, wanted to reach. And in short, we are making the soft landing that people predicted we couldn't make without unemployment and keeping recession down. Great news for the economy. Not so great news for Joe Biden. Latest Monmouth poll has him at 34 percent approval. And why did you pick that? (laughs) Because that's the big puzzle, isn't it? Why isn't he getting the credit presidents customarily um, get for a good economy. Uh, I don't have a clue to it. People have offered uh, various hypotheses that uh, one of them is that he seems so feeble that people can't connect anything so vibrant as a booming economy with him. The other is that the Democrats are just afraid of offending anybody by saying things are great when, you know, the price of uh, eggs is still too Mm -hmm. high. I I don't know. I don't know the reason. Uh, But uh, it is interesting that Ray Fair, who's an economist at Yale and who has a scale that predicts presidential um, races on the basis of the economy, his model, I think, narrowly does predict a Biden victory. So there's that. Well, you know, Jack, I have one answer to why presidents don't get uh, credit if they deserve it or not uh, for economic news. And that is the numbers that matter to economists are not the same numbers that matter to everyday people. And I'm just thinking of my own pocketbook here, because when we talk about a cool down in inflation, yeah, that's good news. But it's it's still an increase in, in growth, right? It's just a cool down in the rate of that growth. It does not mean prices are going down. And I, no, and no. I think that uh, people, when they're, you know, whether it's at the gas pump or buying eggs, like you said, they're still seeing prices that were higher, much higher than a couple of years ago. And in a lot of cases, they're getting less stuff for those prices. So it feels it still feels like a like a hit because it's like wow i still have to spend more on my groceries than i used to and my maybe my income hasn't changed all that much so the the 
meaningful number sets are different. And I actually think that's a major gap between how policy is is communicated versus how it's actually experienced by people. But uh, I'm sure there will be much more to talk about along those lines in 2024, Jack, because it is rapidly approaching. Um, oh, my. Isn't it? Well, let's get to actually uh, the uh, the main event here and the questions that your jackpot listeners have sent. Now, we didn't use every question, mind you, but I want to start with John Irvin from Los Angeles. He has been thinking about political messaging and strategy, and John concludes that Republicans are beating Democrats with stronger long-term strategy. They have had a lot of, I guess, intellectuals, you would call them, planners, strategists, who have for decades been coming up with uh, ways to create wedge issues, ways to create messaging, ways to hook people and get them to support their party. And what I see when I look at the Democrats, unfortunately, is just a lot of emotional responding. I would love to see the Democrats engage some people who are really good long-term thinkers now, probably they're already doing this, but I don't see the evidence. Okay, Jack, what do you think? Oh, that is a perennial. John has a hearty perennial there. Uh, I have heard that throughout my life about the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, there's the famous quip. Uh, the Democratic bumper sticker says, to be continued on the next bumper sticker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, are, they are terrible at it, and they have needed to hire Madison Avenue uh, decades ago to tell them what to do. Now, there's a pretty good theory about why, and it's been uh, why they have this problem. And Michael Tomaski, editor of The New Republic, has, has I think, put his finger on some very important uh, sort of three factors that account for this. Number one, there he says, there are fewer liberals. Uh, 25% of the population calls themselves liberal versus... 36% that says conservative. Well, that just means that uh, the Democrats have to reach a little further from their, their, their base to get to more of the country. And if they're talking in the language of their base, liberal, it, it, it doesn't translate into what the rest of the country is thinking. Whereas if for conservatives, it's easier, they don't have to reach as far. Second, only half of the Democrats are liberal. Mm. <laughs> and so they're not even talking necessarily uh, to their own people. In fact, there are roughly as many conservatives in the Democratic coalition as there are, quote, very liberal uh, people. Uh, so who are you talking to? They can never quite get that right, even within their own coalition. Third, the GOP message, cut taxes, uh, you know, own the libs, uh, get rid of the uh, immigrants, uh, deregulate. Everybody knows what that is. Whereas the Democrats, what's their message? He's got a good sentence. He says, a Republican could give you his party's elevator pitch in the time it takes to go from the lobby to the third floor. With a Democrat, you'd need to go about 40 floors, and then they still wouldn't be finished. And then there's this. They're afraid to say liberal. You know, there's that dark saying of Robert Frost, a liberal is a fellow who's afraid to take his own side in an argument. <laughs> 
Wow. Okay. Well, that that really hits the nail right on the head, Jack, because I don't know, in my mind, maybe this is why I will never be a political strategist, because I think I just, I don't know, I oversimplify things. But I think, isn't an elevator pitch that just basically says it was FDR, right? Chicken in every pot. Was that FDR? No, actually, that was Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to very rapidly walk back from that one, Jack. But my point was, it's like, we want to be sure people have enough to, uh, you know, satisfy their well-being. They won't get get thrown into bankruptcy because of a, you know, a healthcare emergency. Their kids can Mm -hmm. get a solid education and Mm -hmm. you won't retire in penury. I mean, that kind of seems... That would only take me a floor, perhaps, to say. But is the problem that precludes that from happening, um, is it the fact that Democrats have to say a lot in order to get their message across because they haven't actually focused what their message is? They don't know what they believe as a coalition are the most important things to go after. That's exactly right. Okay. Their, their spread is so much wider than the Republican. You know, 70% of Republicans are conservatives. 25% of Democrats are liberals. So the Democrats have got to speak to very conservative people. They've got to speak to moderates. They've got to speak to, you know, uh, somewhat liberal people. And then there's that small fraction of very liberal people they have to speak to. The trouble is that their arguments, their the sort of the gravamen of their case all comes out of the very liberal group. That's where you, uh, that's the intelligentsia, that's the columnists, that's MSNBC. And they speak a language that is opaque to much of, not only in much of the rest of the country, but to a good part of the Democratic coalition. Aha. Okay. So this brings us to uh, another comment that we got that actually came to us via email um, and not our conventional uh, on point Vox Pop app, but it's completely apropos to what you're saying right now, Jack. It came to us from a listener named Leo Quigley. And he wrote an email where he said, quote, I am a 59-year-old white man, a lifelong New York Democrat with a civil servant's income and a healthy balance in my retirement account. My professional life has been dedicated to building affordable housing. I do not own a house or a car. And he said, he goes on to say, progressives want to harm my livelihood, raise my taxes, drive up the cost of housing with green mandates, embrace self-serving union work rules protect cyclists uh, with congestion pricing in order to slow traffic, automobile traffic, kill off affordable Airbnbs. He has a list that goes on. And then Leo Mm -hmm. says, I feel the middle class squeeze, rising costs, limited income growth, and I see a progressive agenda with no care about driving up the cost of living. If given the chance, progressives would kick me out of my rent-stabilized apartment in favor of a poorer person or an asylum seeker. If given the chance, progressives would reduce my social security by imposing means testing when push comes to shove. And that's from Leo, who calls himself a lifelong New York Democrat, Jack. Oh, boy. That is, uh, Mr. Quigley has put his has put his finger on a lot of grievances that we've been hearing, and not even just from, uh, you know, relatively comfortable Americans like him. I'm not saying he is comfortable, but he says he has his nice retirement. But we have talked about, you know, uh, African-American voters in, uh, in Chicago who are resenting the asylum seekers in Chicago because they're claiming, they're putting a claim on uh, resources that are vital and have been understood to be habitual and necessary 
to longstanding Chicago uh, communities. And of course, why are those asylum seekers there? Well, that isn't really the fault of progressives, but maybe it is in some ways. I mean, in the 2020 Democratic primary, when it was asked, should we decriminalize the border, essentially, it's mm -hmm. a misdemeanor. Uh, all hands went up except for Joe Biden's. Mm. <laughs> you know, so in other words, the Democrats were saying, yeah, sure, let them all. Look, I, I'm not making that up. Uh, that happened. And Biden's failure to get on top of this uh, issue that we've been talking about for, you know, it seems like months uh, of, of the asylum seekers, the situations in the in the northern cities, his failure to do that is uh, lamentable uh, political practice. It really it really is. Yeah, and as you can hear in uh, in Leo's email and the the voices of Democrats we featured on those shows that you're talking about, Jack, he's risking losing Democratic votes because of it. Okay, well let's move on to one of our favorite uh, contributors to the jackpot. This is Howard Turner with the view from Elkhart, Indiana, as I like to call his contributions, because uh, Howard calls us every week and he's got such thoughtful messages to share. So thank you for that, Howard. Today, Jack, he asks you this. What does Jack think of a 21st century fairness doctrine to maybe get back to having some good political debate so that us voters can decide truthfully what the country is going to be like? I think that might help. What do you think, Jack? Uh, Howard, I think it might help too. And you know, a lot of people apparently think that uh, if you put uh, 21st century fairness doctrine on Google, you get 5 million results. <laughs> uh, and it, it, there are, uh, there's a very interesting paper there in the Harvard Law Review laying out all kinds of ideas that could uh, mitigate some of the uh, siloing in American uh, media. Uh, one of them uh, from Martha Minow, who's a professor at Harvard Law, really uh, talks about somehow using algorithms that would allow users of, you know, whatever, Facebook or uh, Twitter or X, uh, that would allow users to see a broader range of content than what their own history would suggest. Uh, whether that's feasible to do. She says it's technically feasible. Uh, and that's the kind of thing. Then there are other people who say, look, uh, Frank Stasio, the former CNN uh, reporter, says, you know, we've got to label opinion on television talk versus news. And, and he says just, it's getting all mixed up and people are confused and they just think they can't tell the difference. And... Uh, uh, it, it should be, he's talking about somehow labeling it, even while people are talking, labeling it. This is news analysis. This is opinion. This is reporting. Pretty good idea. And maybe it would help, uh, it would help uh, meet Howard's uh, rightful and accurate complaint. Mm. You know, it's interesting to me, Jack, that uh, in really throwing it open to questions uh, from your listeners, People are really seeking solutions. They're just looking for ways to improve um, what ails the United States. They're very, they're in a very solution-oriented mode, which actually gives me a lot of hope. I have to say, we've got a couple of more that we want to listen through. Uh, but Jack, as we do in every episode of the Jackpot, this is the moment where we just have to take a little bit of a break. So we'll be right back. 
Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. We're back with episode 15 of The Jackpot. It's the final episode of The Jackpot for 2023. Don't worry, we will be back with much more next year. Today, to wrap up the year, we are answering your questions. So, Jack, the next listener we're going to hear from is John Fitzgerald from Camden, Maine. He's got a two-part question. Well, it's actually not so much of a question um, as a set of requests. The first is a deeper exploration of the wealth discrepancy that exists in the U.S. today and uh, maybe taking it back to do some historical analysis from perhaps the robber barons moving through the New Deal in World War II and through the uh, post-Vietnam era. And then the second is related somewhat. Um, I'm curious about the social programs from the New Deal that are still in place and whether they are in trouble. So, Jack, before I let you answer, um, John, I just want to tell you first and foremost, read Jack's books. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You have spent so many years researching and thinking about these exact Issues, Jack. I mean, first of all, I'm just going to shamelessly plug your books here for a second. Um, I have your your 1914 book. Of course, there's your very, very famous Rascal King book about um, the former Boston mayor. Who? What other books of yours do you think you'd recommend to John to put on his holiday list? <laughs> Age of Betrayal, uh, The Triumph of Money in America. It's a, it's my portrait of the Gilded Age, which is the robber baron era, era that John uh, alludes to, and uh, and how that reached a point where it was there was a correction, and the correction was the New Deal. Aha! Uh-huh. Okay. And 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 so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't mean to cut you off there, Jack, but but John, right now, put it on your list or just get it. It's called The Age of Betrayal by the one and only Jack. Okay. So, I mean, you can go ahead and answer the first part of John's question if you want, maybe in a little bit of a bridged way so we don't give too many spoilers from your book, uh, Jack. (laughs) And then I also definitely want to hear what you have to say about the second part where he talks about he's curious about the social programs from the New Deal that are still in place and if they're in trouble. Sure. Well, in a nutshell, the, the New Deal made two great differences in American life. One, was the Wagner Act that essentially uh, legalized collective bargaining. Before that, of course, there'd been all sorts of injunctions against labor unions. Labor couldn't grow. 
and behind the Wagner Act, even though after the, the war, the Taft-Hartley Act seriously limited it, still, uh, up into the 1960s, 35% of the private sector workforce was in unions. That put a floor under all wages and put some impetus upward under all wages. The result was that in the 1960s, real wages <laughs> unbelievably grew about 40-odd percent. Uh, and at the same time, there were very high taxes on the rich, especially on unearned income, on estates and capital gains and things of that sort, but even on regular income. In the Eisenhower years, the highest marginal rate was up to 90% on, mm. on fortunes. So there, were, there was egalitarian taxes, progressive taxes, egalitarian uh, uh, social arrangements in the form of uh, Social Security and, uh, and, and uh, you know, unions and so on. And, and this created what people call the Great Compression, where suddenly people at the bottom began to benefit, and people at the top did okay, but not so well. Uh, that lasted up until the New Deal era really lasted to about 1980 when uh, Reaganism came in and essentially stopped the, all, all these egalitarian uh, thrusts. And, and inequality, which had been abating, grew, incomes froze. So I think that really brings home, the, uh, brings home the point. As to his notion about what remains of the New Deal, well, Social Security's there, unions are fighting back, uh, they've got a long way to go, about 6% of the private sector workforce, but it's been a good year for unions. And you know, there's really only been two elements of the New Deal that have been repealed, both by a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, it's just hard to forgive him, frankly, for the, for the repeal of aid to families with dependent children. That was a crucial part of the Social Security Act, and it always had the protection uh, given under the nimbus of the phrase widows and orphans. And yet Bill Clinton, to get through the 1996 uh, campaign he was going to win anyway, he threw that out and went with the Republicans on this mean-spirited uh, quote unquote, welfare reform. So Bill Clinton is the only one who's touched the New Deal, the essential New Deal. And he did the same thing on the financial side. Mm. <laughs> there was a thing called the Glass-Steagall Act mm. that was part of the FDR's you know, reform of the banking system after the panics on banks and so on. Uh, and it separated commercial from investment banking, meaning that you know, your local bank wasn't going to get involved in speculation that could result in a bank run and lose you money. Uh, he repealed that. And what was the result? Joseph Stieglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist, sees it as making an indirect contribution, this deregulation, to the financial crisis yes. of 2008. Yeah, we were slouching our way to credit default swaps and other toxic yes. forms of, or exotic forms of financial assets. Uh, and there was at least partial correction after that because of the financial crisis from uh, Glass-Steagall to Dodd-Frank. That story will That's never right. end, right, Jack? So, yeah, so uh, we'll, put, we'll leave that one there and move next to Monica. 
from Moore Park, California. And I really think she's got possibly the most important question that we receive from listeners in this open mailbag. What is it beyond our founding documents that we as Americans share that we have in common in a nation of such diversity, both culturally, linguistically, regionally? Is there something beyond the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that holds us together as a nation? What do you think, Jack? Well, Lincoln spoke to this in his first inaugural when, you know, the March of 1861, as the southern states were were seceding, he said, the mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. He was positing those mystic chords of memory that would hold us together, the Revolutionary War, the independence struggle. And he was saying, someday when this tragedy is over, we'll feel that unity again. Uh, and and I, think, I think many Americans would posit World War II as a, you know, those are our mystic chords of memory going back to the immense sacrifices made by the greatest generation. So something holds us together. Sentiment should. But here's the problem. Increasingly, things, even these documents, <laughs> the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, don't hold us together. Liz Cheney has said, you can choose Donald Trump or the Constitution. The two can't go together. A vote for Donald Trump, she said, is a vote against the Constitution. Well, looks like uh, half the electorate is ready to say, we don't want the Constitution. However, there's some good news there. Just a couple of days ago, the Des Moines Register did a big poll, essentially taking some of Trump's uh, fascistic rhetoric, eight different examples of it, and playing it to a sample of, of, of Republican voters and saying, what do, you, what do you think? How do you, uh, would this make you more or less likely to vote for Trump? Well, Ann Seltzer, who's a legendary pollster and who did it, she said, the voters don't seem to be given pause by this rhetoric. They're even more likely to support Trump as a result, with one exception. I'll get to the exception. But, you know, are you okay with uh, sweeping up uh, undocumented uh, immigrants and putting them in uh, sort of mass camps? You bet, say 50% of, uh, make me more likely to vote for Trump, say Iowa Republicans. What about the vermin, you know, rooting out the, the radical left vermin? Are you for that? They are for that. What about uh, immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country? We agree with Trump, make us more likely to vote for Trump. There's one exception, and that is only 14% of them would be more likely to vote for Trump after this, reading the, his statement that the 2020 election justifies, quote, this is what Trump said, terminating a part of the Constitution. Only 14% went on, uh, on the record with that one. And uh, that's a vote with Monica that maybe the Constitution or the idea of it is one thing we can build on. I agree, Jack. I agree. There, there are some fundamental 
ideas or ideals built into both the Constitution and the Declaration, which do, you know, resonate with every American. The question is, of course, the question facing the entire nation now is how do we how do we build that resonance to the point where, as you quoted Lincoln, it brings us all back together? I don't have the answer to that, Jack. But given given kind of the note that we're we're ending on here, I've I've got one question for you. So can I take the the, the place of the the final questioner to you today, Jack? Okay. Okay. So you know we do talk about everything that is challenging this nation right now, because we have to, right? Honest and really brave analysis, I believe, requires that. But I want to close the 2023 pod series here with a question from the other side of all that troubled water, okay? Jack, I want to know what is it that you love about this nation? What is it about America now that still makes you proud? Oh, well, my gosh. Um, <clears throat> well, I tell you, I'll, let me, uh, I, I gave myself a treat uh, in June reading um, three books that uh, Shelby Foote is a Mississippi historian, and he wrote a 3,000-page history of the Civil War. And it is one of the great works of American history. He did it in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. 3,000 pages. I read them all in June. And uh, that memory makes me proud to be an American. Proud to be in a country where, uh, you know, there was a, he tells the story of a, of a young man who, uh, an Iowa, Iowa boy, I think, who ran away under pressure. And, and they, uh, they had to make an example. And... Lincoln did pardon some of these people, but not all of them. And so they were going to shoot the young man. And he said that he understood why. Because the war was to make men free. And, 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 And that he understood why his sacrifice was necessary for that. Well, in memory of the Union dead and all they sacrificed for I think that's, not that that motivated all of them, but it motivated enough of them to make men free. And uh, so I'm proud of that. I'm proud of what they did and the the union they won for us. Uh, And I'm proud of um, of of the spirit of the common man. That's always there in America. I'm a great lover of Frank Capra's movies from the 30s. I mean, even It's a Wonderful Life. But you know, there's such a feeling, for a populistic feeling for just the average person, man or woman, trying to get by, and a sense of solidarity with, with them. Uh, there's a wonderful scene, and it happened one night where Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable are on the bus, and suddenly everybody starts singing those wonderful men and the flying trapeze. And one does a solo and the next does a solo and Gable sings and Claudette sings. It's a beautiful moment. And, and I, those moments of solidarity when Americans feel uh, connected over just common matters, a popular song, whatever it might be, I think those are precious and, uh, and they reach a kind of uh, apotheosis in the films, not only of Frank Capra, but I would say also in John Ford's movies. Yeah. So 
That is a beautiful concluding thought, I would say, to 2023, that there is still this deep need. I agree with you, Jack, in America to um, to uh, honor the common man, woman, family, right? Because that is what most of us are. It just falls to us now more than ever to protect, as you said, that precious commonality from all of the myriad forces and individuals who, you know, would want to manipulate it. So uh, that that's my call to conscience right now. And um, it'll be the thing that animates me through next year, Jack, when you and I return again for the weekly jackpot. So um, until then, Jack, I really deeply wish you um, a year's end full of reflection, renewal and joy. OK, Jack? Well, thanks in no small part to you. Uh, I will, I'm sure, have that. Thank you so much. I look forward to the to the new year, too. And to all of the Jackpod listeners, thank you for listening every week. We will have a ton more for you next year. And that same wish for reflection, renewal, and, and joy as 2023 comes to a close. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jackpod on On Point. <laughs>